0: The fog cleared temporarily, and I got a glimpse of the blade of the knife, and it went straight into me, and I never felt it. I was drifting towards a light, is the only way I can describe it, and then I remembered I hadn't hadn't said goodbye to my girls, and I thought I can't do that to my daughters.
1: Episode 15 of the Lib. This is the story of police dog handler Bruce Howard and his faithful German shepherd, Kara. That was Bruce at the top of this track. The pair of them, man and dog, were a team to be reckoned with on the thin blue line of law enforcement back in the 70s and 80s, until one foggy winter's night when everything, and I mean everything, changed in one terrifying encounter. Theirs is a tale of bravery and sacrifice, but it's also a touching love story. A tale of the truly incredible bond between a dedicated policeman and his little black Alsatian, who faced down some incredible dangers together. Please be warned, it does contain some disturbing details of violence. It was on his first day of training on the police dog squad that Bruce Howitt met the girl he was going to end up spending more time with than even his closest family. It had all the hallmarks of some kind of strange arranged marriage. Six puppies, six men, some great expectations. Not one of them had clapped eyes on each other before that day.
0: They had five bitches and one dog to be allocated. So I went out and at the end was this little wee wee black bitch and I went down and she saw me and she was literally cartwheeling inside her kennels. And from my perspective, she chose me and I just looked at her and thought, we're going to make an awesome team. So when we went back in, the, the instructions were, if we could all agree, then we would get the dog we wanted. If there was a dispute even between two, They would draw a letter of each kennel out and that would be the dog that you'd get. Well four of the six wanted this one, and I said well I don't want that one, can I have the one I've chosen? And I said no. the deal was if there was any dispute we'd have to go in the drawer and take what we got. I didn't have anything against the other dogs, they all looked quite cute little furballs, but that one at the end kennel, her and I just had an instant magic between us. Inside myself, the bosses never not even was spitting a bit of a dummy over it all and thinking, I'll just take the last one to heck with it. And the last one that came out was that little black one at the end's kennel. And I just couldn't believe it. I thought, this is magic. We just became a team automatically. First thing we had to do was get our name approved. I said, "Kara." What the name meant was really important to me. And Kara as a name means my friend and that was true to the bitter end.
1: It took 15 months of intense training for Kara to learn how to be a police dog.
0: There's thousands of hours of training to get a police dog to behave instantly on command. Kara just took to tracking. I couldn't keep up. The first track we did, she literally pulled me over. She was dragging me along and I was superbly fit. I could not keep up at her. she went at 100 miles an hour.
1: There was something else that made Kara stand out from the pack.
0: I'm six foot one. When she was in the sit position beside me, the top of her head came equal with my kneecap. She was bordering on runt size for a German Shepherd. She was way smaller than all the other dogs that graduated, considerably smaller.
1: Bruce never saw Kara's size as an issue. As far as he was concerned, even her weakness was a strength.
0: She was what I called a sewing machine biter. She would bite someone lots of times. There was only really two occasions in her old career that she broke someone's skin. Uh, and as a dog handler, there's a pride in how macho and tough your dog is. So that was her weakness, that she was not strong. But in saying that, she saved me a huge amount of paperwork.
1: Once Bruce and Cara became operational, there was no stopping them.
0: Kara was a general duties dog. They've got to track people and find them, and at the end of the track, there's two types of people that they have to deal with. Like, I tracked a young girl who'd gone off to commit suicide, and because of the urgency and the nature of it, I let Kara free track, knowing that she would know how to read the situation. And when I got there, she was sitting with this young girl with her arm wrapped around her, cuddled into the kid, comforting her. So she knew to read that situation, that that was not someone dangerous, that was someone that needed help. How we got the dogs to read that, I till to the state don't know, but there's something innate in the dogs. The other was, if you got there and it was someone violent and dangerous, that the dog would take the person out by attacking them.
1: Bruce and Cara were based in Hamilton, and it wasn't unusual to be called in to track escaped prisoners. One day, they were needed to search a vast tract of farmland for a man on the run from Waikaria prison.
0: We had to go and search barns and everything for this guy. We came over the brow of this hill and there was a barn ahead and Mick said, send Kara forward, she can check that out. So I sent Kara across and she jumped over the fence, checked this barn out, no one in it. And then we heard the sound of the Iroquois helicopter. And then a few moments later, going across the the Kaimais, we could make out the silhouette of this Iroquois helicopter. And someone on the squad said, oh, wouldn't it be nice to be in that instead of trudging our way around? And made a bit of a joke about it. So when we searched that barn, Mick said, actually, you guys are right. We're gonna take months to search this area. So he called up base and said, look, that Iroquois has gone through. Can we get that back to you know, fly us around? We could do this a lot, lot quicker. And so... Um, we carried on and checked another couple more barns. And then the radio crackles on, on Mick's earpiece and he says, get your running gears on, boy. That We're going up in the Iroquois. They've brought it back for us. So we were quite ecstatic. And then I suddenly realised, Cara's never been in a helicopter before. I don't know how she's going to cope. I didn't know what to expect. And I thought, well, a lot of police works, bravado and bullshit, and would rely on that. So when we got back to base, The Iroquois had landed and they'd taken the side doors off it and this pimply-faced, looked like a 15-year-old pilot, his army uh, was going to be the pilot. And what was going to happen was we were going to put a rifleman on each skid of the Iroquois. Mick and I was to sit in the middle in the console with Kara on a lead and we were going to go up and check the barns. And the pilot said, Look, I've got my lunch in there. I don't want your flipping police dog eating my lunch. And I said, She's better than you, mate. She's a trained professional. She won't touch your lunch. She's not allowed to touch food without a command. I think he'd taken exception to the way I spoke to him, this pimply faced kid. And we got him this Iroquois. He winds it up. Well, if. Kara could be smiling, that's what she was doing. She thought this was the bee's knees sitting in this thing. And it's sheet metal flooring in these helicopters. And so this young guy just suddenly boosts it and this helicopter takes off. And we'd see a barn and he would give us a signal and he'd put the helicopter side on to the barn. And then he literally dropped 200 feet. It was just a matter of seconds where the rifleman would look in and then he'd crank it straight back up again. So we were going around and checking farmers' hay barns like that, and I was getting greener and greener. Well, I'm sure Cara's smile was getting bigger. She knew I wasn't enjoying it, and she was loving every second of it. So we were going along, and he decided that he wasn't going to keep rising this up and down. He was just going to shoot along about a matter of a feet above the farmers' barbed wire fences. And... Coming up ahead of us is this big stand of blue gum trees and you could make out a bit of a crack between them. And so I was getting my stomach ready for the up and over the blue gum trees. And he never said a word this delightful little creature. And at the last minute he flipped this chopper on its side and we went through. Now the poor rifleman on on the skid, he was hanging on for grim death, almost dropped his rifle trying to hold on to the chopper and feet flying everywhere. The other one came flying in through the chopper and, of course, Kara, with the sheet metal, she had nothing to grip on. Luckily, I had the lead wrapped around my hand well, and she was flying in midair with me hanging on for grim death, and there were a lot of very colourful words being said in the chopper at this stage. And so once he got it levelled out, Mick ripped his earpiece off of me and gave him no uncertain language, why he was never to do that to us ever again, and we continued on. So we went to the next one, back to our old routine, high above it, and dropping down and looking in. And when we dropped down to look in, I felt the lead getting tight from Cara. never thought anything about it. Then we'd carry on a bit more, and next thing Cara goes, loops on the lead, and I, I look across, and then I realise she's licking her chops. And I thought, what are you licking your chops for, girl? And I look across and there's a very, very empty lunchbox with hardly any crumbs left in it from the pilot. And she'd eaten his lunch and I thought, oh, flippin' heck. I nudged Mick and the ribs and I pointed at Cara who was still getting crumbs off the side of her face and pointed at the lunchbox and he started to lose it. So we were going back to base and we made sure by the time we got back that we had deadpan looks on our faces. We said, well, yeah, really appreciate your help, guys. Time for you guys to get on the road. And as soon as they got that chopper up and it had its tail towards us, Mick and I fell to the ground. And Ming, went at the rifleman, and said, what the heck are you guys laughing at? Well, we told him. And he just went over and hugged Cara and said, oh, you good girl, thank you for doing that. Revenge was ours. <laughs>
1: Just like their two-legged colleagues, police dogs have a home life. Cara lived at home with Bruce, his wife, and their two daughters, as part of the family.
0: She had two personalities. She had a home life and a work life. One night, Mum asked me, could I call in on duty and pick up something that she had for us? And so I called on and mum and dad, and I drove up their driveway and went and saw Mum, and she said, have you got Cara in the van? I said, of course I have, I'm working. ''Oh, come out and say hello.'' I said, ''No, Mum, you won't.'' She said, ''Yes, I will. She'd get upset.'' I said, ''She won't even know who you are.'' She said, ''Don't be silly.'' I said, ''Mum, she's on duty. The only person she knows when I'm on duty is me. She's a professional.'' Well, Mum wasn't going to have a bar of it, so she walked down the side of the van, and the van was rocking incredibly as car was going nuts, frothing at the mouth, roaring at her. So Mum's, ''Oh, silly dog.'' And she opened the back door... And Cara was locked in her cage and biting the bars of the cage, trying to get at mum. And she said, Cara, settle down. And I just let mum do it. And I said, I'm just telling you here and now, the police accept no responsibility if she bites you, because you've been warned numerous times not to try and touch that dog. She's a professional and she's working. And that was the nature of her. The moment she got in in the police vehicle, she was on duty. But... My oldest daughter, Debbie, grew up only knowing Kara as a family pet. She would often feed Kara, Daddy, can I feed Kara? Quite often she would do it and say, let it long enough, Kara, and she would just grab the bone and pull the dog off, and Kara would just sit there and let her take a bone off her. That's how soft she was at home with the kids. People would come round to visit. She never barked. She just took no notice of them. Just run past them, didn't care less. She was off duty. Kara had the highest catch and clearance rate for rapists and sex offenders in the country. Now, whether that was because she was a female and she took offence to it, I don't honestly know. But I must admit, out of all the crimes I ever dealt with, rape was is the most intolerable crime of all, as far as I'm concerned. That and molestation of children, they're just abhorrent crimes. So I have often wondered whether Kara picked up the vibe from me, but there were times when we caught rapists that we shouldn't have been able to. The, the tracking was exceptional, her performance was exceptional we were up in the top category in the country for our clearance rate, the pair of us. We used to joke as dog handlers, we always used to say to our wives don't ask us to select between you and the dog because at the end of the day our lives depended on that dog. The amount of occasions that they would save our bacon because they would control an offender that we couldn't was horrendous and you knew that if you went to work, your dog was going to bring you home more than the other way around.
1: But sometimes, it was the other way around. One night, Bruce and Cara were called in to help the armed offender squad, who'd received a tip-off that a dangerous escaped prisoner was hiding out in a bush cabin on the Coromandel Peninsula. It meant walking a kilometer through dense forests in the dead of night. Kara, with her sharp eyesight and keen sense of smell, led the way.
0: We got up to the hut and it was about an hour to go, I think it was until dawn, and we were sort of thinking this is starting to get quite boring, you know, and it's starting to get cold as the Coromandel dew starts to come on, we were starting to shiver and thinking, are we going to last another hour or whatever time was left? There was no sign of the sun coming up, and Phil said, you getting bored, Bruce? I said, sure am, boss. He said, you reckon? I said, yeah. So he gave the signal for the troops to hit this place, and they did. Heard the back of the place go flying in, the front door flying in. They, They came out and said, there's no one in here, boss. And I think it was then aware that Cara was pulling on my lead. And uh, I kept looking down at her and I thought, there's someone out the back there. That's a person. That's that's not a possum or a rabbit. She, she knows there's someone out there. And I said, hey, boss, I think there's someone out the back here. And he he, he said, oh, don't be stupid, Bruce. They had no warning we were coming. I said, you have a look at Cara. So one of the boys dragged his torch out and Phil said, oh, do you reckon? I said, yeah, I do. He said, let her go. So cool. So I ripped the lead off her and thought this guy is dangerous. So I'm not going to muck around. So I just gave her the attack command. Well, she went off like a scolded rabbit into the bush. And so I'm giving her the command, and you're listening all the time and listening. I was expecting to hear a bark or something, and nothing's going on. And I could hear the bushes making strange sounds. So you know, I, I said to one of the riflemen, "Come with me." And we started to, to edge forward. And then I heard a cry, Ow! sort of sound. And I realised she was attacking someone. So then I was egging her on and said, Kara's got someone here, boss. And so um, what she was doing was her sewing machine biting, going over this guy with squillions of bites. And that's why she wasn't barking, because she was biting him. And this guy was just taking the bites, because he realised that no one knew the dog had found him. And so we got in there and um, got him out, and we were going to wait out till daylight for an easier walk out. And I was sort of standing there, and Cara just lying down beside me, chatting with Phil and the other guys. And one of the AOS guys had his torch push, and said, why are you bleeding, Bruce? I said, what are you talking about? He said, why are you bleeding? I said, I'm not bleeding. You're a bleeding idiot. And he said, look, and he shot, and there's blood in the grass. And I looked down, and as soon as I saw it, I realised it had to be Cara, because... There was just too much blood, and the offender had not been anywhere where we were. And so I just told her to go into the line position, flipped her over. Oh, God, this upsets me to this day, what I saw on that wee girl. She had lost the pad of one of her paws, hanging on by a solitary thread, and she was bleeding and bleeding, bleeding hard. I knew it was serious, really, really serious. We are in the middle of nowhere. So I screamed for the first aid kit and they brought it over to me. And I just got bandages and and said, I'm getting her to the van, can you call and get a a vet for Thames called out for me please? So I wrapped the wee girl's foot up as best as I could and I was going to try and carry her and then I thought, she might be little but we're too far and she'll be dead from loss of blood. So I just had to let her run loose and do the best we could and walk and run as fast as we could get the two of us out. And when we got to the van eventually I lifted her and put her in her kennel. It was about 45 minutes drive from once we got to the van to the vets at Thames. We didn't do it in 45 minutes, it was a hell of a lot less than that. I was crying by the time we got to the vets. I I expected to open the back door and see a dead black dog in there. It was just gut ripping. opened the back door of the van and it was, oh my god, it was just red everywhere. It had just sprayed everywhere through the back kennel, across the floor, there was just blood for Africa. So I just grabbed her and sprinted into the vet. She was still alive, you could tell when I was holding her that she was still breathing. And we got her in there, then the vet took us in and put her on the stainless steel tables. And she just sat there. She just sat there, and the vet was doing something, and I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm making a muzzle. I said, what the hell for? She said, I'm not doing work on that dog unless it's muzzled. I said, you're not muzzling my dog. She said, it's a police dog. I said, that's why you're not muzzling it. She will not harm you. I promise you she will not harm you. She'll cause more havoc if you muzzle her, because she's not used to that. She will be good for you. So I lay her down on the table so that the vet could get at her. The most painful bit is and putting an injection in for the local she never flinched she let the vet completely localize it and then she just lay there and watched all the stitches go in and her pad being stitched back together and then we stood her up and um, she just licked the vet the vet leaned down to her and she just licked her across the face I said that's my girl son thanks Why, why her paw was cut was out the back of this hut. They'd thrown all their rubbish and there was broken glass in there and she had shredded her foot. While she was attacking that offender was when she'd ripped her pad, but she was there to do a job. She was a professional and she did it no matter what her injuries. And she never once whimpered. If that AOS guy had not shone his torch down, she might not have lived, to be honest, because she would have bled out before we might have noticed.
1: It wasn't the only time Kara needed Bruce's help. Again, it was a nighttime mission. Bruce and Kara were called to a golf club next to the Waikato River, where burglars had been interrupted and had been seen dumping some of the stuff they'd stolen nearby. The thieves were well and truly gone, but Bruce knew Kara would be useful for retrieving the dumped items.
0: This dog is Jet Black, When she's in the shade of the trees, I had zero idea where she was. So Cara's searching around, I'm trying to spot in bits of the light where she is, and see her moving along the bank, searching and doing her thing. And then there was just silence. I couldn't hear anything out of her. I thought, where the hell is she? So I start to call her back to me. Police dogs are trained that when they're told to come, they come. You shouldn't be ever repeating a command to them twice. She should have been back at me like a bolt, and then suddenly I heard a thumping noise, and I couldn't make sense of it, so I was calling her and calling her, and Paul and the detective called out, is everything all right, Bruce? I said, something's wrong with Cara." He said, what? I said, I can't find her, and Paul comes over with a torch and was shining around, can't see her, and I'm calling her and calling her. Now, at this point, the Waikato River flows through beside the Narrows Golf Club, and the cliff to the river... It would be 50, 60 feet at least. And I get the torch and I'm shining there, and then I see her, oh God, on the rocks, just just lying there, no movement. Oh, I wanted to jump off the cliff and join her. I'm not joking when I say that. It rips your gut out. you're just so close with these animals, your life, everything about them. The bond is just so special. That's unique. And I just didn't want her dying under horrible circumstances. And Paul and I were just looking at her. And Paul had a real feeling for Cara because a couple of months before, she'd caught a double murderer for him. So we, we were lo- looking there and he was. we were quite emotional because we both thought she was dead. And I said, I've got to get down to her, I've got to get down to her. And um, we started looking, and there was no way to get down without putting our own lives at huge risk. And so Paul said, look, get Fire Brigade to come out with one of their rescue boats. That makes sense. So we got on the radio, and I called up um, and asked operations room, could they please call out Fire Rescue and bring out a boat uh, and pick me up and we can rescue Kara? And the senior sergeant came on and said, I am not calling out fire brigade to rescue a dog. And Paul and I just looked at each other. We just couldn't believe what we just heard. And every heckle that could in my body came up. And I just saw red, so I called up and said, Can you organise for a a rifle to be sent out, Senior? Because I need to make sure the dog is dead. I will shoot it, and you can justify how you've made a decision that will kill an extremely expensive police dog that'll take me another year before I can have another one operational. But that's on your shoulders, your choice, Senior. I don't care what your rank is, you're not doing this to my dog. And Paul and I were just standing there, and then Paul said, I think she's alive, I think she's moving. Because she was black, it's hard to work out movement, but it looked like her chest was moving up and down a bit. And then we got the call, fire brigader on their way. He backed down, thank goodness. The fire truck came out, and it was the rescue machine they brought out. So in the end it was agreed that Graham, the senior fireman, he, he would be winched out. And when he got down there, he he was scared, and understandably so, And I was worried, how's she going to react to him? And um, he got there. I knew that she saw a rescuer had come to help her. The the look on her face, I know it sounds crazy, but dogs have looks on their faces. Animals do like humans do, They, they communicate that way. And I knew she was going to be okay for him. And he got her in the harness eventually. He said, she's alive, but she's not good. And so he clipped the harness so that he had her back pinned to his chest and her paws out in front of him. A cliff isn't just a sheer drop. There's a curved bit at the top. And so there was times when he was being winched up where we could not see Graham or Cara. But he was communicating through on the radio. And then we had a long pause that he wanted it to stay still and no idea what was going on. And I thought, oh, God, has she died on him or what? You know, I'm just beside him. I'm a sook when it comes to my dog. Uh, and eventually over that come. And what had happened was when he was winching her up, the, the rope would twirl in the breeze of the wind and, and the river and everything. And he put himself between her and the bank so the dog wouldn't get any more injuries. And he sustained injuries himself to not let Kara get injured. So he came up over the top with, with her, got her up and took her off and said, look I'm taking a stroke of it. He said, go Bruce. And I said, you're injured. He said, don't worry about me. Go. I haven't done this for her to die. And I said, I agree. So I just roared that dog van all the way in. She had broken two or three of her ribs, she had ruptured her spleen, she had an amazingly black eye which was easier said than done to find on a jet black dog, but if you pull the fur apart she had a massive black eye and she was off work for six weeks from that injury. Neither of Cara or I had seen Graham since that rescue night. We'd never seen him before that rescue night. When she was back on duty and we were back at work, we went to the fire station, jumped her up onto the bumper of a fire truck and had her sitting there, and then Graham walked around. Well, this dog went silly. I mean, she went silly. She recognised him. She wanted to jump and try and bear, hug him and everything. That was the man that had saved her life and she wasn't gonna forget it. And I still got it in my scrapbook, a beautiful photo of this big smiling dog leaning over her chin with this big pink tongue, slobbering out of her mouth with excitement. It took us ages to get that. There's still enough for that photo. She was so excited to see him.
1: It wasn't long after that, that Bruce and Kara faced the greatest danger of their careers. By then, Kara was getting old and was suffering from arthritis and hip dysplasia. She was in constant pain. She still went to work every day, but Bruce had been given another dog to train up so Kara could retire. In the end, retirement came much earlier than expected. It was a Sunday night in June, 1983.
0: When I started that week of night shift, I had a horrible premonition, and that's the only way to describe it. And when the senior spoke to me at the beginning of the week and said, what do you reckon the week's going to be like, Bruce? I said, something really bad's going to happen this week, senior. I've just got a horrible gut feel something bad's going to happen. And I had a bit of a weird reputation that when I said those things, something bad happened. About the Wednesday night of the week, we'd had an incident where I'd gone to a petrol siphoning, and it was gang-related, and I was surrounded by gang, and the patrol cars were meant to be out circling the area, were playing cards at the police station. And I was not a happy camper, as I told over the radio what I thought of everybody. And the cavalry eventually came. So when I got back to the station, the senior said to me, that's your bad premonition. I said, no, sorry, senior, it's not. The worst is still to come. I said, you can't get much worse than that. I said, I can't explain it, senior. The worst is still to come. I was at home on the Sunday night, and I answered the phone, and it was a call-out to a job. And um, Debbie looked at me with excitement, she was four Jackie our youngest was only a little baby but Debbie I gave her the nod and she knew that she was allowed to run out of the kennel and let Cara out and let her do toilets while dad got onto a uniform at 100 miles an hour so I rushed out into the van and I was off blue lights going my ex-wife wife would be holding little Jackie up at the window and Debbie would be jumping up and down with excitement I'd turn the blue flashing police lights on Everyone on the street knew then to get the heck out of it because I was coming through at speed. So, you know, that was my last view was of my little four-year-old beaming from ear to ear, waving goodbye to Daddy. So we roared off into Hamilton, and I can't honestly remember what the job is all these years later. It was a fizzer. There was nothing there.
1: Bruce returned to the station to catch up on paperwork.
0: Crikeys, it must have been getting on towards 11 or 12 o'clock at night when the phone goes. And it's the operations room, and there's a burglary in Garden Place in Hamilton, offender on premises. We went flying out the door and roared up to Garden Place. When they'd got to Garden Place, the patrol car had called up for dogs and they had their radios up full board, and the offender in the premises heard that and thought, oh, I don't want a police dog biting me, so he gave himself up.
1: On his way back to the station once again, Bruce saw a young guy who looked like he was graffitiing the side of a building.
0: Everything about him says he's up to no good. So I just drive the dog van over the wrong side and in my head I'm just going to tell him to grow up, and clean up and go home sort of thing. You know, I had no intention for stupidity like that to get into anything more complicated.
1: Then, while they were talking, the guy suddenly scarped. Bruce figured the only reason someone would run away from him was if they had something to hide.
0: He's running down like a maniac. Now, this guy is little. He wouldn't have even come up to my shoulders. Certainly didn't meet my normal criteria for an offender. The car is roaring her head off. So I um, decided to get her out, knowing she's not much good for anything, and put Chase. So I was not the best at obeying all the rules. I hadn't radioed off. No one knew where I was. The only piece of police equipment I had with me was my handcuffs. We just jumped her out and thought, this is just stupid, as this idiot doing, and put Chase and I thought, I'll catch him before she does. We ran down Tisdale Street Hill towards Radnor Street, and it's really foggy, and so I'd just get an occasional glimpses of him towards the bottom. I thought, darkness is his friend and my enemy. And I thought, oh, this, this is just a pain in the proverbial. And I get down to the bottom, and I have absolutely no idea where he is and how long it was. It felt like eternity that Kara arrived. She was hobbling. She was not in a good condition at this stage. And um, she started barking at these bushes. So I told this young clown to come out, and he wouldn't. So I bent over to go into the bushes to get him, and thinking, you ruddy nuisance, you're going to get locked up. You've really annoyed me. And so I leaned over to go into the bushes. And next thing, because I'm tall and I had to get down low to get into these bushes, he grabbed me and pulled me to the ground and we're fighting. And I thought, you stupid little turkey, you're too small to be fighting me. And, and we're fighting away and I kept he- feeling them hitting me between my shoulder and my elbow and my left arm. If anyone tells you they've got stabbing pains, let me assure you from someone who knows, they've, they don't know what they're talking about. I started to smell blood, fresh warm blood, hot blood has quite a unique smell to it. And I couldn't understand why he was bleeding. Then I saw his hand holding what I now know to be a bowie hunting knife. The fog cleared temporarily and there was moonlit come through and I got a glimpse of the blade of the knife and it went straight into me and I never felt it. <music> I thought I got to stop this, and so I grabbed him by the wrist with my right hand, with his hand, with the knife in it, and was holding it. And then I realised I got a problem. I could feel the blood running through my underpants, and I thought for the blood to be getting there from up there, this isn't good. And Kara's still outside the bushes barking which she's supposed to do. They're not allowed to attack without command unless the handler's been taken out of action. Well, I wasn't out of action, I was still fighting with him. So she had no legal grounds under the dog's law books to go in and do anything. So I had to let this guy's wrist go again because I thought, I've got to disarm him. And I let him stab me again. And again, I never felt the knife going through me. The Bowie hunting knife, when it opens out from hilt to tip, is 13 inches long. This is a mean hunting knife and so when he came back next time I actually reached out and grabbed the blade because that was all that was freely available to me and I twisted it, threw it what I thought for me was eternity I actually expected to find out that it would be on the other side of the road later in court I found out it was less than three feet away I'd thrown it
1: Somehow, Bruce managed to handcuff the guy
0: And I knew I was bleeding really, really bad. It still, it never registered with me anyway through this that my left arm wasn't working. And so what I was going to do in my head was pick him up by the belt because I knew he was light enough I could carry him and I was going to carry him back up to the police station because we were literally 100 yards from the police station. I got out and I stood up, picked him up by his belt Whether I took one or two steps I don't know but all I know is that that was it for me and I went down unconscious. And that's when I looked back down at him because I was drifting towards a light. is the only way I can describe it. And I looked back down at him handcuffed on the side of the road and Kara was already in with him. And then I remembered I hadn't hadn't said goodbye to my girls, and I thought, I can't do that to my daughters. They were used to Daddy being on night shift getting called out, but they always knew when I came home, I'd go in and give them a kiss in their bed at night before I went to sleep. I always did that. Even if I hadn't been called out, I'd still do it, and so I had to go back for my daughters. I can now tell some of the story because I've found it out from the cops that were on duty that night. In fact, one guy, he was in the operations room and took the call from the lady whose bedroom window it happened outside of. And this woman called in and said, there's a fight happening outside my bedroom window. I think it's a policeman. And Trev said, I'm sorry, but there's no policeman in your area. She said, I'm sure it's a policeman and I don't think it's good. It doesn't sound good outside there. There's a code that the police give that means absolute radio silence, operations, the only ones allowed to speak. He gave that code over the radio to shut everything down. The senior heard it and came in and said, What's happening, Trev? And Trev said, There's been a stabbing at the bottom of Tisnall and Radnor Street. It's Bruce. It's really, really serious. I don't think he's going to live. He had no information of that. There was a young cop who was on station duty, still at the train school, came in and heard that. He never said or asked anything. He just took off, pole vaulted the counter and ran down. When he got there, all he could see was blood everywhere and me lying there. He just ripped his shirt off, wrapped it round his fist and he drove his fist with his shirt into my arm. If he had not done that... I would have been dead. I was, according to all accounts, by the time I got to the hospital, down to less than half a pint of blood left in my body. From the guy's perspective, I wasn't going to see the night through. For three, four days that I was in intensive care, none of them thought I was going to live. When I came round and was conscious, the first thing I asked after was Kara. Kara, had not eaten the whole time I was in intensive care. She loved her food, but she would not eat. And they were getting beside themselves. No one knew what to do, how to get her fed. And they knew that she needed to know I was alive. There were conspiracy theories going on with the nurses to bring her up the stairwell of the hospital for her to see me through glass doors. And I said, no, you can't do that. Just when you go home, tell Cara that the boss said she's to eat. Told my wife, just tell her that. When my wife went home that night, she said, Well, the boss has said you've got to eat, and she did. Uh, I I think I had about two weeks in hospital. I'd lost the use of my um, left arm because there's a thing called the radial nerve had been severed. It was touch and go surgery. There was worse than 50 50 odds of me getting the use of my arm back, which, thank goodness, one thing went right, I got the use of my arm back. When I was in hospital, it obviously got a lot of media coverage. No, I wasn't interested. In it. My only thing I wanted to see was my daughters. But from floor to ceiling were cards and letters from people wishing me well. I had about half a dozen from guys I'd locked up during my career, and I had three from guys that Cara had caught. Showing there was no malice and they were asking after her as much as they were asking after me. I was off duty for two months on sick leave, trying to get myself as fit as I could. And the police, with their very gentle, caring way, decided that I was to go back as a dog handler. So I was suddenly back as a dog handler on my own with a very sick dog that was almost incapable of working. And I never appreciated the dangerous stuff I attended until the month that I was back as a dog handler. And in that one month, I went to 23 knife incidents on my own and three firearm incidents on my own as, as a dog handler with a dog that was not capable of working. And it came to a head for me when the, um, we got a call again. It was another Y-carrier escapee who was dangerous and he had burgled the morons sports shop and taken firearms and knives and i was dispatched to go over there and try and catch him we got to the scene and i wasn't even sure whether Cara would be able to track but she picked up the track which staggered me and we were heading off the night shift detective is coming along with me when you're tracking an offender with a dog You can tell by the dog's behavior if you're gaining on the offender, if you're getting closer. It was obvious, Kara was gaining ground, even with her health on the offender. And we were picking up guns and knives that the offender had. And in my head, I was thinking, I can't do this. I seriously can't do this. I felt danger to myself and to Cara and to the detective. So I said, we need the armed defenders here. We're going to catch this guy soon. And I said, Cara and I are in no position to take the offender out. We called up for the armed defenders and the duty senior sergeant, who was the same one that wouldn't call out fire brigade for me, said, I'm not calling out armed defenders. You can catch them yourselves. I just lost it big time said to the detective and this is a very mild translation I am not doing any more. I'm going back to Hamilton and you're not to say a thing on the radio. If you do, Cara will interview you and I catch up with you. That's a very polite translation of what I was saying, believe you me. I put Cara in the van and I just drove like an idiot. I wasn't fit to be driving. I shouldn't have been driving. But I did. And I drove back to Hamilton. And I did damage to the police station with the vehicle. Let's leave it at that. I took Car out of the van, took her into the police station. We jumped over the counter and everyone saw the mood that I was in. The senior sergeant was in his office. I jumped her onto his desk and said, guard. And I said, in case you're not aware what well, that means, you move a muscle and she's legally allowed to bite you. Your pedigree police station, I'm leaving and walked out. They got the police surgeon to come down and whack an injection in me to knock me out. That was my last night of dog handling. They put me on sick leave, indefinitely. The welfare officer was visiting me. He said, Do you want to leave, Bruce? I said, please, is my life. The streets are where I eat, sleep, and breathe. I don't want to leave. I know I've got problems, but I want to get well and get back. He said, Well, you're not going back dog handling. I said, Well, Please put me back as an ordinary cop. Let, let me come right. Because they were really good at counselling. You didn't get any. But after that night, they then decided to get a trunk to talk to me. My first session with me, he said, are you one of these violent punchy policemen? And I thought, you're not going to hear a thing from me, mate. If you, that's what, how you brand us you can have no understanding of what the stuff I need to talk about because the stuff I see and do every day. And so I just clammed up. You're not here to help me if you think like that. So, kind of long story short, they trained me up in law related education, which is doing school talks for the police. The trouble was, every school I was going to, because of the media coverage of my stabbing, I just couldn't cope with it. These kids wanted to know the story of my stabbing. I was just running out of the classrooms crying. And in the end the Welfare Officer came down and just looked at me and I said, do what you've got to do, I can't do this. So they started the process of formally medically discharging me. I was allowed to keep Cara as a pet. I'd lost my health, I now lost my job and my then wife announced that she'd had enough and that was the end of my marriage. I had two years of living hell with severe clinical depression. During that time, Kara's health deteriorated. I took Kara to the vet. I said, look, she's lost her bowel and bladder control. And the vet just looked at me and I said, you're joking. He said, no, we've got no choice, mate. So I rang my minister to ask him, would he come and help me? He said, so long as you don't want me to pray for a dog. I said, I want support for me. My beautiful dog sat there. She knew what was going to happen. She looked me across the face and cuddled into me while I euthanized her. She died in my arms, which was beautiful. The minister had to drive me, even though it was my vehicle home, I couldn't drive. And I buried her at my home. That was our, our two careers' vision.
1: That was the end of Kara's story, but Bruce's story was far from over. He ended up having to go through several court cases to give evidence against his attacker. Quinn Patterson was eventually found guilty of grievous bodily harm and sentenced to 18 months in prison. After being discharged from the police, Bruce went to university, got himself a master's degree and while he was there, he met his second wife, Soraya. He also became an ordained Presbyterian minister and established a number of trusts that helped to educate young people. If he'd suffered his injuries a decade or so later, Bruce would most likely have been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, a psychological response to frightening experiences that causes survivors to relive the traumatic event over and over again. Without the help he so clearly needed, his recovery took almost a decade. By last year though, it had been 34 years since everything shook down between Bruce Howitt and Quinn Patterson. A long time by anyone's book. But as it turned out, Quinn Patterson wasn't done with wrecking lives.
0: Police and armed defenders squad arrived and discovered two uh, deceased uh, women. A man was also, uh, had been shot and uh, was currently in Whangarei Hospital and he in
1: On June the 26th of last year, no. property manager Wendy Campbell and her daughter Natania no. went to a house in Fareora, near Whangarei, for a routine house inspection. They had with them a contractor to install some smoke alarms. The person who lived at the property was Quinn Patterson and as the trio parked their vehicle and walked towards the house, Patterson reached for one of the many guns he had at his disposal. Something inside his mind had snapped that morning, and before his visitors got to the front door, he opened fire. The two women were killed instantly. The contractor was also hit, but he managed to scramble to safety. When the police arrived, Patterson opened fire on them too. Then all went quiet until orange flames began to flicker and a thick fog of black smoke started to pour from the house. Knowing the shooter was most likely still inside, the emergency services had no choice but to stand and watch the house burn to the ground. On the morning that all of this was unfolding, It was like Bruce had somehow been psychically plugged in to his old adversary.
0: I was working for a trust I'd set up in Rotorua and I was driving to Tikori High School. And I was driving around through the back roads around through the lakes of Mangakino and that area and I had a horrible feeling come over me. The guy that stabbed me, Quinn Lawn Patterson, I've never forgotten his name, when he got released on parole He told the prison officers that one day he was going to come back and finish me off for what I did to him. Frequently, I've woken up with nightmares and things of him and what he did to me that night. It took me about eight, nine years to stop the nightmares of my stabbing night. I could just see Patterson, and I was physically shaking while driving, and I had to stop the car. I just couldn't control it. It didn't make sense to me why it was so bad that time. I was used to getting shakes and shivers down my spine, but nothing as bad as I had that day.
1: Then, later that day, he was in Hamilton.
0: I was driving across the Caudelands Bridge and my car phone went, and it was a journalist. And she said, you're the former police dog handler. I said, I'm not prepared to say anything more until you tell me who the hell you are and what you're ringing me about. I'm ringing you about the shooting up in Northland. I said, why would a shooting in Northland have anything to do with it? I've been out of the police for years. I don't understand why you're ringing me. She said, then you don't know who the offender is. I said, again, why would I? And then she said, it's Quinn Lawn Patterson. And I lost it. On the bridge. I had a hell of a job to get the car off the other side of the bridge and pull it up and stop it because I just I just started crying, shaking like a leaf. Well, obviously I didn't sleep very well that night, and the next day I found out Patterson was dead. So I contacted my extended family a matter of weeks later. I said, I want to have a blessing ceremony at the scene where it happened
1: where Quinn Patterson attacked him.
0: And it's only for family, and it's not for media or anyone. It's private, it's personal. But I need to bring this to a close for myself. And because I'm an ordained minister, i got some sacred water. And we went back to the scene. We parked where it started from, and we walked in silence as a family down the hill. And I did a... Blessing and the cleansing of the scene and it made a huge difference for me to be honest. It psychologically did and it was a healing thing for our family.
1: Patterson's child remains were found inside the house in Whareora after the siege was over. These days, Bruce says he's no longer haunted by what Patterson did to him. The cleansing ceremony did its work, but not a day goes by when he doesn't think of Kara.
0: When I left the police, a friend made a um, model of her, and it still sits at the entrance at every house I've lived at. I walk past it every day, say good day to her. I've never, never had a day where I don't think of her. I just can't not. You know, it's been painful to tell of her Drew's like it's painful to tell of mine. But, you know, there's some glorious catches that we had together. I don't have to close my eyes to remember. There was a lot of fantastic times with that little wee dog. You've
1: been listening to The Lip a podcast of Extraordinary True Stories. I'm Megan McChesney. I'd like to say a big thank you to Bruce for taking the time to share his story with the Lib. I was really struck by how vivid his stories are, even though it's been more than three decades since he and Kara were on the beat. By the end of our time together, I really felt he'd given an insight into a world many of us know less about than we think. And I was so impressed by how honest Bruce was when it came to talking about that tough emotional stuff. He revealed a very human side of policing that, well, we don't really get to see a lot of. So thanks, Bruce, for all of that. If you want to see Bruce and Kara, there are photos of them on our website, thelippodcast.kiwi. Bruce has also written his own accounts of his escapades with Kara. You can find his stories on the writing website, thestorymint.com. Again, that's thestorymint.com. There's a link to The Story Mint on our website, thelippodcast.kiwi. If you're new to The Lip, you can check out all the other episodes at our website, again, thelippodcast.kiwi. It's also available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever else you find your podcasts. And if you love The Lip, one of the best ways you can help to keep it going is to tell other people about it. Sharing on social media or suggesting it to friends and family is a great place to start. Thanks to everyone who's already shared. Well, I think that's about it from me. I really hope you have a great week and do remember to keep your sandwiches safe from any passing police dogs. See you again soon.